Hello. Welcome everyone to our weekly Dhamma session. My name is Yuta Dhammobhikhu. I'm here to share the Dhamma. And I'm joined today by Chris, who will be asking questions on your behalf, and by Jim, and maybe even Ulu, though Ulu seems to be having technical difficulties. They will be helping to sort and organize questions. Chris is also our slide master, so he will be responsible for the display that you see. So thank you to all of them for their help. Thank you to everyone for coming out to listen. We don't use video for this session purposefully because the idea is not to see me or see something. The idea behind these sessions is to cultivate the practice while we listen. So you should close your eyes and focus on your own experience. Try and see clearly what arises and ceases in the present moment. Gain a better perspective on your own reality. If you have questions, post them in the chat. You can start posting them already now. I'll spend a little time talking. And once I'm done talking, then all the questions will be organized and displayed, asked and answered. So the topic of my talk today is Heartwood. This morning we had a weekly Dhamma study session, which is less about practice and more about theory. And we read through a sutta and we talk a little bit about it. And today's sutta was called the Mahasarupama Sutta, Greater Discourse on Heartwood, on the simile of the Heartwood. So in it, the Buddha provides a simile that he says, basically that Buddhism is like a big tree magical tree or spirituality is like a forest you can go into the forest looking for looking for something of value looking to take something away from the forest looking gets looking to get something out of it in practice meditation, it's quite common to focus very much on the 
the results. What are we going to get out of it? Which is hard because they can't simultaneously focus on results and focus on the practice. It's common for meditators to become distracted by thoughts of results. So when we practice, it's important not to obsess over results, but it is good to have some idea of what you might get out of the practice of the spiritual path. What might you get out of Buddhism? so that when you practice, you can focus on the practice and be reassured. That the benefits are worth the cost. So the first benefit that comes from spirituality and Buddhism more specifically is is material and and worldly gain. Now this is true for monks. When someone becomes a Buddhist monk, they they gain some status in Buddhist society and they receive support from the Buddhist community. And now obviously this is not a very spiritual reason for becoming Buddhist or becoming a Buddhist monk. But it bears mentioning. It bears mentioning because there is some there is some some depth to goodness to the gain of material benefit in the sense that someone who is on the right path will tend to prosper materially it's not always as obvious as when one ordains as a monk and gains support from the community but more profoundly when a person undertakes the practice becomes a better person their relationship with the world around them with other people with their society can only improve their status and their reputation and all of this reverberates into their mundane non-spiritual life This is why many non-spiritual people approach religion as a, a bit of a, a, a bank of sorts where they 
support religious institutions and expect some return on their investment and often do gain return on their investment. Certainly, if not in this life, the promise that many religious traditions, including Buddhism, give is a better afterlife. Now, Buddhism, I think, has a better chance of providing that sort of promise, uh, following through with that sort of promise because of the focus on truly important things like the cultivation of good deeds and good thoughts, and good inclinations, rather than beliefs and views and doctrines. So when a person is charitable, when a person is ethical and so on, the benefits come not from some spiritual entity, but they come from one's own goodness. And so and, and there's more of a, a down-to-earth, uh, well, it, it's actually rooted in reality. So the benefits are actually rooted in truth and they're actually real. Sorry, I think I got muted there. What was the last thing you heard? Where did I get cut off, Chris? Rooted in reality. Hmm. But so the, the benefits of spiritual practice are Or the benefits of, of the worldly benefits of spiritual practice are very real. But they're certainly not the most compelling reason to practice spirituality. They're not really a, a great benefit. The Buddha likened it to a person, a person who... who engages with in spirituality for this reason, whether they be a monk or a meditator or a, a, an ordinary everyday person who takes up Buddhism as a religion and then becomes content with the worldly benefits, the possible possible material benefits, even up to including heaven. 
person who becomes content with attaining and obtaining a heavenly rebirth. The Buddha said this is like a person who goes into the forest looking for looking for some material. They want to build a, a house or a building or a piece of furniture or something. And they come out with a handful, an armful, an armload full of twigs and leaves. And anybody who knew anything about building would be able to tell you that this person isn't going to be able to build much with that. They got something out of it, that's for sure, but it's not really that beneficial. There's nothing of any real benefit there because heaven, of course, is impermanent. Not to, men not to speak of any other material benefit that might come. It's actually dangerous, just like if you try to build a house with sticks and and leaves. Bad things can surely happen. In the same way, if you're dependent and complacent, relying on material wealth, material gain, you'll be be certainly left unprepared for the loss the degradation or the, the dissolution of such support. And yet, and yet it's necessary. It's necessary to rely on these sorts of support while we go further. A monk relies on these things, but so do ordinary people. If you don't have this kind of support of a community, Anyone who wants to undertake spirituality needs a mutual reliance on each other, on, on a community, on relations, relatives, friends, associates, employers, employees, to maintain their livelihood, to keep themselves going. But this isn't the heartwood. So the second positive outcome of spiritual practice is ethics. Ethics is the base. The Buddha identified this as the foundation of religiosity, spirituality. Spirituality must be grounded in this. And for some, spirit. Uh, Ethics, morality is enough. It's the, it's the essence of their spiritual practice. Outside of Buddhism, there are religions that focus on ethics. You know, Judaism focuses very much on ethical precepts. Do this, don't do that. Most religions have their edicts, their their precepts, their commandments, what you must do, what you can't do, what you must believe, what you can't believe.
Buddhism has these as well, the, the five precepts and some important, you might say, beliefs or views. Your views must be to some extent in line with what we claim to be reality. Otherwise, it would be very hard for you to progress. But it's certainly not enough. It's not the heartwood. So for someone who takes up ethics and thinks of it as the, the ultimate, this is like a person who comes out of the forest with a handful of bark. Anyone can see it's not going to be of much use. You can build some things out of bark, but not anything of any great endurance. Not anything of any great strength or durability. The third thing that comes from practice, from practice of spirituality, is a depth of concentration and focus, a peace of mind. A stillness, a coherence, a cohesion in the mind, where the mind becomes very strong, very still, very pure. And this starts to get into something that's a fairly substantial benefit, something that is realizable here and now, something that has depth and profundity to it. And for many is the ultimate goal of their spiritual practice, the state of tranquility, of absorption. So many Buddhists think to be the Samambonam of Buddhism, or experience to be that. Many other religious traditions, it's considered to be communion with some kind of spiritual, some kind of divine entity or divinity, some sort of ultimate reality. In meditation practice, the mind can be quite, become quite still, quite absorbed. But the Buddha called this just like more bark. He said it's a, it's a more... It's a more refined sort of bark, just like some trees have an outer bark and an inner bark. This is like just the inner bark. He still said this was not very valuable. Anyone who knows anything about building, about carpentry, about woodworking can tell you that bark isn't going to get you very far. So even this seemingly profound state of tranquility is not 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 sufficient, but it's a, it's important. It's ethics, just as ethics is the foundation of the spiritual practice. Tranquility, stillness, 
strength of mind, cohesion of mind, all these qualities that come from meditation practice. These are the, the pillars with which we build our, our house. Or not the pillars, they're the whatever it is that you build after you've got the foundation, the frame, the supports. But it's a, it's a support. We use it for what? We use it for something further. The Buddha said the next great thing that comes from spirituality is called jnana dasana. Jnana dasana. Jnana means knowledge. Dasana means vision. There are many kinds of knowledge and vision that come from tranquility, that come from peace of mind, from depth of mind, from strength of mind, from, in, from intense and profound spiritual practice like mindfulness. Now in some traditions, even in Buddhism, there are mundane but profound spiritual attainments like clairaudience, clairvoyance. Some people remember things far in the past. Some are apparently able to see the future. Some people are able to read other people's minds, understand their, their other people's emotions. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? Lots of interesting things that people claim that are hard to believe if you've never had this depth of spiritual focus, this spiritual strength, as they seem to break the laws of physics. They have nothing to do, of course, with physics because they're mental, but they seem unreal to those who have never had that depth of mental fortitude. But in Buddhism, of course, the focus is elsewhere. It's not on these magical powers. It's on the great and magical power of seeing clearly of seeing our own experience clearly, of understanding how the mind works, gaining a, a depth of understanding about our own our own mind and the workings of our mind, our ca the causes of addiction, the causes of suffering, causes of stress and anxiety and so on. And this, the Buddha said, is, is like real wood, real wood. Any of these knowledges, the, the real result, something that you can tangibly say, this is some tangible benefit, something that is unlike anything you would find outside of spirituality. There's no pill that you can take. There's no, no possession you can, you can obtain that's going to replace or equal this sort of benefit. So this is like softwood. It's like you've gone into the forest and you come up with softwood and someone could say, well, you could 
you could build something with that, but it's not going to be that stable or, or strong. Probably not going to make a very good uh, construction. It will be weak, subject to dissolution. Termites can eat that sort of wood. It will rot quite quickly. But the final, the final benefit of spirituality is is the consummation of mental training, which includes tranquility which relies on ethics, relies even on material well-being, and grows out of knowledge and vision. It comes as a result of knowledge and vision. Knowledge and vision is not really the heartwood of the tree because at any time someone can become complacent in their knowledge. Quite often, a meditator will practice, after practicing a little bit of meditation, become convinced of the truth of the Buddha's teaching and mistake that conviction for actual realization. And the conviction of it being true seems material seems uh, real enough, substantial enough to be considered knowledge. And so such a person thinks that they have come to know the Buddha's teaching and becomes complacent. It certainly happens. So, but the true true knowledge in Buddhism is such strength and potency that upon gaining it, it leads to the cessation of suffering. It, it leads immediately to the letting go, not just some kind of theoretical or, or abstract letting go, but a very visceral cessation of suffering where there's the cessation of all samsaric experience of any arising of anything, even memory or perception, is a complete peace, complete stilling of mental formations. And it is that peace, it is that experience, or that experience that realization, that attainment of cessation. That's the hardwood. That is something that is of great and lasting benefit. I'm going to call this asamaya vimutta, asamaya vimuti. Asamaya. Samaya means occasional. Asamaya not occasional it's not ephemeral it's not in unstable this is a 
It's something that is stable. When the mind is let go in this way, there's a true change through wisdom, through that very realization. One's perspective on things changes. One has gained some greater perspective and everything will be seen through this new light. See, like a person who goes into the forest, it comes out with an arm load or a big truckload of hardwood and they can build whatever they want with it and build a, a refuge that is truly secure, truly strong and withstands the vicissitudes of life. And a person who has realized this truth, this this freedom, uh, liberation of mind will be unaffected by the elements, by loss or pain, blame, It'll be unaffected by the good things in life, but also unaffected by the bad things. Their happiness will not depend on their experience, their, their situation. They will never be tossed around by things because they're, they've seen beyond it. Their mind is beyond that. They've attained to the goal, the core of the spiritual life. So Buddhism has all these things. This is the progression of practice that the Buddha talked about in the Mahasaropama Sutta. So I think I've talked long enough. That's some food for thought, food for the heart. And now if there are any questions, we'll move on to our question and answer period. I'm happy to answer the questions that people have already asked. If you haven't, go ahead and place it in the place your question in the in the text box. We're focusing on questions that are of high importance to the people asking them. So it has to be a question that relates to your own spiritual development, something you really need an answer to. So questions that are based on curiosity or theory will get a lower rating of importance. Anyway, our, our team has organized the questions. I'll start asking them now. Okay, let's begin. How do you overcome the voice of self-doubt, and how do you teach yourself to let go of regret of past mistakes and the anxiety of an uncertain future? Well, as with all things relating to the mind, we we focus on the understanding of them. Now, our, our focus in relation to these things is quite often on fixing them, solving the problem. 
And as I said, that's about about focusing on results. That's kind of to our detriment, because during that time that we're focused on results, we're not actually focused on any practice that might bring about those results. And so, it's always going to be a two-step process. You can never focus on the thing that you want to happen because you have to bring about that thing through some other practice, through some practice. You know, what is it that's going to bring about the desired result, which is the basis of your question? The first answer is to focus on not what you want to happen, but on what will make it happen. Meaning, if you, what, what is the answer here? The answer is to uh, undertake a practice uh, separate from the intention for those things to be fixed and, and ameliorated. That practice, well, we would say is mindfulness, the cultivation of a clarity of understanding of those things. So for example, with self-doubt, the way forward is to understand it, not to try and overcome it, not to try and be free from it. When you have self-doubt, try and learn what it is to self, to doubt yourself rather than trying to reassure yourself or, or fix it, you see. Focus on, the, focus on the cure. Focus on the actual practice that will cure self-doubt. Once you see clearly, once you see even self-doubt clearly, of course, there's far less doubt. Doubt is a funny one in that way because you might doubt the practice, but the practice is actually, if you undertake the practice, will free your mind from doubt directly by its very nature. It's an intrinsic aspect of mindfulness and clarity of mind that, of course, it does away with doubt. And as for regret and anxiety as well, they, they, they can't survive a mind that is focused on clarity and objectivity because they are reactions. Regret and anxiety are, are not objective. They are not a consequence of seeing things as they are. They're a consequence of imperfect, skewed perceptions of things skewed based mostly on things like identification, partiality, none of which has anything to do with the reality. So when you focus on things as they are, your memories, for example, your, your, your perceptions about the future, conceptions and plans for the future, and you focus on these things, see them just as they are, there's no room for anxiety or regret. So if you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, that might be a good place to start. If you're interested, you could take a course. We have these at-home courses. It's all free. You can find more information on our website. Should I give in to unfocused sleepiness when it arises? Well, there's no real hard and fast rule. It might happen that you do give in to it. 
it's not something you should feel really bad about. Sometimes you might nod off or sometimes if it's really strong, you might lie down and go to sleep and start start up again when you wake up. But that's sort of a last resort, something you shouldn't discard out of hand. You should be prepared to have to uh, succumb to it. But certainly it shouldn't be your first resort. You should try your best to be mindful. One's first resort should be to take it as a, an object of, of attention. When you feel drowsy or tired, focus on it. Say to yourself, tired, tired, drowsy. Try and just see it as it is. If that doesn't work, there are many more extreme methods, extreme measures you can take. You can open your eyes turn on a light, you can stand up, do walking meditation, standing meditation, you can do some chanting, the Buddha recommended that sort of thing, just like when people are driving at night, they might start singing to the radio to help them stay awake, it actually is quite effective, we don't encourage singing, but chanting, if you learn some Buddhist chants, you can do some chanting stimulates the mind. But ultimately, if none of that really works, splash some water on your face or whatever, then you lie down and go to sleep and start again when you wake up. I can sense a deep unhappiness inside of me. How do I deal with this? As with the first question, it's something that you try to understand and and really try to move away from the idea of of fixing it. Because most importantly, I mean most obviously it, Life is uncertain, and there will be, from time to time, unhappiness on your practice until you become completely enlightened. There will always be some sort of unhappiness. Meaning it's something you have to be prepared for. It's something you have to understand to be a part of your spiritual journey. From time to time, there'll be unhappiness. It's not going to be constant. But sometimes... It's easy to lose sight of the, the the better times. When unhappiness comes, it can lead to great doubt as you think that perhaps the practice is not beneficial because it's not a linear progression. Unhappiness comes back. Unhappiness like many things, even, even uh, unwholesome, un, un, unfruitful mind states, things like anxiety, depression, these can all come back from time to time. Our practice is not going to be linear. It's it's quite often cyclical. We find ourselves right back where we started from. The only thing that changes is our perspective. We find that the reactions weaken, and our clarity and our purity of mind strengthens. But suffering will always come back. Unhappiness 
I'm still going to be unhappy from time to time. What changes much more rapidly than 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 unhappiness to happiness is our susceptibility to it, our reaction to it. We might feel unhappy but not be concerned by it. We won't be upset or worried or uh, consumed by it. We won't cling to it because we start to understand that this that this is the result of our inclinations of mind. We we have the susceptibility to suffer. Become more patient with our pain, more patient with our pleasure as well. Even an enlightened being doesn't always feel happy. All they lose is their susceptibility to pain. And so they do, they do never feel unhappy. But more importantly, they don't cling to anything, and that's why they don't feel unhappy. They've con gone through the ha unhappiness without reacting to it, without feeding it. And so it wastes away. You've gained a strength and a peace and a clarity of mind that is above it. So don't be too concerned. It's not really the first step to free ourselves from unhappiness. First step is to see things like unhappiness as they are and be above them. In a sense, to be happy even when you're unhappy or to be at peace even when you're unhappy. Understanding that you may not always be happy all the time and your practice is going to be a bumpy road. But with a proper perspective, you gain a vehicle that allows you to coast through the unhappy time. Is anxiety only a hindrance if it is accompanied by disliking? Anxiety is a hindrance in and of itself. It's a hindrance, a hindrance. The word hindrance, you understand, relates to seeing clearly. So anything that is a hindrance to seeing clearly, for that reason, it's called a hindrance. It's not because it makes you unhappy, just though that's related to it. The, the, the essence is that it prevents you from seeing clearly. So anxiety will certainly do that. I mean, more importantly, anxiety is stressful prevents you from being at peace. It gets in the way of happiness. It gets in the way of clarity. It gets in the way of understanding. I find myself calm in walking meditation quite often, and I note it. It becomes difficult to notice the dissolution of the calming feeling since walking meditation is a naturally serene practice. Do you have advice on noting this dissolution? We know what's what's present. At some periods of your practice, you're going to be more focused on the dissolution. At some points, you're going to be more focused on the arising. None, none of it is 
more essential than the other just focus on however you experience it i mean with things like calm if it, if it's something that lasts you don't have to wait for it to go away to gain benefit we're just trying to gain a better perspective on the calm so for example someone who experiences calm might become very much attached to it liking it enjoying it and because of that they'll become attached to it though there will arise and and persist a sort of clinging to it that insists upon experiencing it and it is dissatisfied when it doesn't arise. So it's important to note calm, calm, and, and try to just stay with it until it goes away. But if after some time it doesn't go away, you can resume the walking and just ignore it. If you like it, of course, focus on the liking and say liking, liking. I once asked you about ADHD, and the answer was helpful, but I am still struggling with it. Is there any way I can look at it and face it until it disappears from my life? Try not to focus too much on the disappearing from my life part. Struggle with it. Struggle is a sign of growth. Again, this is sort of the essence of what I was saying about understanding that it's going to be a part of your practice. Be patient with it. Life is not a, or, or spirituality is not a straight and constantly upward path. It's a bumpy road. Don't think of the ADHD disappearing, but Think of it as a struggle worth mastering to the point where you're no longer struggling. And that's, of course, where the ADHD goes away. When you're able to face it, experience it without reacting. That's where the goal is, is attained. What should I change about my practice if, after a session, I find myself unable to make conversation with others? I feel stuck. That, I think, just takes time. Be patient with yourself. I mean, mindfulness is, in many cases, for many of us, it's a radical departure from our ordinary perspective on things and so in the beginning it can be difficult to reconcile our old ways and patterns with our new perspective i would say don't be too dogmatic about your understanding about things be flexible flexibility is something you'll gain with the practice and welcome that don't don't shy away from the flexibility that comes meaning don't don't be too caught up in formal mindful practice that you are unable to relate to other people because that's only going to be a detriment to your practice as you're stressing about that worrying about your relations to others Try to slowly, slowly incorporate the two, bring the two together where you're able to be mindful 
in your relationships with others, but don't be rigid in your 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 rejection of worldly things. But be patient with yourself. The, the, big, the biggest thing is that it will come in time. Let it come and be, be, be patient with yourself. Living in a non-Buddhist society, there are numerous people with wrong views in my life. I never point to doubt, but I see judgment arising in the mind because I study the Dhamma. Is it correct to note conceit? It is. I wouldn't... It's hard to put too much focus on it because during the time that you're conceited, for example, it's, it's you're, you're not really mindful during that time. So once you realize it, yes, you can note that. But more importantly, through your practice, that will slowly fade away. It's one of those things that you're going to start to see about yourself that you perhaps you, you most likely didn't see clearly before. So it's not exactly a, a product of the practice. It's a, one of the habits of the mind that we aim to, to smoothen out through our clarity, our observation. Meaning, as long as you cultivate the practice and, and persist in the practice, you'll find it slowly fading away. Don't expect for it to just disappear. It's a, it's a pernicious one. But over time and dedicate through dedication, you'll find that it slowly fades away. You don't have to address it specifically. There's not some it's not magic where you say conceit and you've dealt with that. That's not how it goes. Like anything else, you can note it, but the real solution to conceit is the general state of clarity of mind that comes from noting everything. Nothing to do with the conceit specifically, but to do with the purity of mind that doesn't allow or doesn't admit any sort of conceit. During walking meditation, should I walk extremely slowly so that I can note every step perfectly, or should I continue to walk moderately slowly? So trying to do everything perfectly is, is, is never the right way. So that, that kind of language that you're using is a good warning indicator that that's not the right way. Trying to fix things, trying to perfect things, make things better than they are. Everything should be normal. Everything should be ordinary. You shouldn't feel like you're walking fast or slow. It's most likely going to be slower than we normally walk because we're normally with so much craving and ambition and, and uh, inclination to what we're doing that we leap ahead. So it will be quite a bit slower. That's, you know, you see walking meditation is a very slow sort of movement, but it shouldn't really feel slow. It should just feel not rushed anymore. So as you say, moderately slowly is probably a good description, but eventually it won't even feel slow. You won't have the idea that it's slow or fast. It's just being with the, the experience. So yeah, if it's too fast for you to observe it clearly, then it's probably too fast, but you don't have to deliberately go slow just because you can't experience it clearly. That has much more to do with training and skill and, and proficiency. That just comes over time. You have to be patient to 
cultivate the skill of clarity of mind. During meditation, I felt my eyes water, goosebumps, and pressure on my forehead. Is this good? There's nothing good or bad really in meditation. The only thing good is clarity of mind. I mean, and, and that's not as mysterious as it sounds. It just means the perspective you have on things. So, for example, watering of the eyes, what's your perspective on those things? It sounds like you're you're not sure. You have some hope that maybe this is a good thing, but hope is not a good perspective. Hope is a bit of a clinging perspective, clinging to the, the meaning behind it. Is it good? You want it to be good. Goosebumps, pressure on your forehead. What's really good is a, a neutral pers or an objective perspective that it is what it is. When you feel all of these things, that you're able to see them just as what they are. That's what's good. So if you ask, if you want to ask whether something is good, that's what should really be asked. Is it good to see these things as they are? That's what's good. Yes, that is good. But for these things themselves, they have no, they have no capacity to be either good or bad. They just are what they are. And if you can see that, that's good. Can I change the object of my meditation during meditation? For example, if I am focusing on my breath, can I change it to noting? I don't really understand the question. We focus on noting. If you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, I'd recommend that. Of course, you can sign up for a course if you really want to go in depth with it. But if you mean you're noting the breath and then you switch to noting something else. You try and note what is clearest and if something distracts you from the, the stomach rising and falling, then of course you should note it as well. But noting is sort of the basis of our technique. I could have an available time to meditate early in the morning, but I am discouraged because it seems too difficult an undertaking, even if it could have excellent benefits. How do I find the courage? Well, courage is... Courage is a... Courage is an important quality of mind. something that comes from appreciation of the severity of our situation, of the importance of spiritual practice, of the urgency of it, of the greatness of it. It comes from things like study. It comes from association with good people. It's a good question. It's a question. It's a very practical question. Even though we know we should be practicing, how do we actually go about picking ourselves up, putting aside our procrastination, overcoming our procrastination, and engaging in the practice for real? The many factors involved. Put a set association with good people is up there. If you associate with good people, all good things can be expected.
ultimately, I think practically there is no concrete answer to this question. It's a part of the struggle. And so if you're struggling to practice in the morning, then well, continue to struggle. Don't try and find a resolution or because you'll just be disappointed if you can't, if you try and then you fail. Consider that the trying is the practice. And if sometimes you are able to practice in the morning, well, good. Don't have expectations that that's going to persist. Just keep trying. That's how success comes about. I'm a bit stuck with the formal practice. It feels too exhausting at the moment. Can keeping the precepts, watching Dhamma talks, and reading suttas create a fertile soil for further progress? Not without the practice. I mean, I think it sounds like you've given throwing in the towel with the practice and you really shouldn't. If something feels exhausting, it's really somewhat abstract conception of it. Meditation can't be exhausting because it's not a real thing. So what is real is this feeling of being exhausted or the feeling that makes you think you're exhausted. Maybe some tired, some disliking, maybe some laziness. Try and take things as, as they are from moment to moment. Try and experience them. Usually when this sort of thing happens, it's because we're not noting something. We're not focused on what's actually there and we overlook the actual experience. So try and take it as an object of meditation. You'll see that should improve things. How does one deal with suicidal tendencies? I think practically speaking, one should seek professional help for suicidal tendencies if they get extreme. I mean, anyone can have a thought about suicide without being suicidal. But if someone is truly considering suicide, they really should seek professional help. There's, it's not something that I'm qualified or um, it's not something I'm certified to help with so and and it's not necessarily something that that it is going to be helped by spirituality i mean your mind might be in such a state that you're not able to appreciate and engage in the teachings that i that i have to offer so in many cases like this there are people who are better suited to support you during this time I guess I would say that if you really dedicate yourself to the practice, there really shouldn't be a problem with such suicidal thoughts. And this relates very much to what I was saying about how 
we can all experience these suicidal thoughts without actually being suicidal. And that's, that's the direction you want to go in. Not getting rid of your suicidal thoughts or inclinations, but trying to see them just as thoughts and inclinations, things that arise and cease. They're they're, they are experiences as well. It's an, it's an experience of thought. It's not me thinking. It's not me who, who, uh, whose life isn't worth living, for example. These are just thoughts. They arise and they cease. There's nothing more to them. If you can see that about everything, including suicidal ideation, then nothing will be a problem for you. Bhante, we've passed the hour. There are nine more questions in the first tier. All right, go for it. Would eating meat affect our meditation? Maybe. I don't know that meat particularly. Um, it's, if it has any effect, it's a very limited effect. It's not something you should be concerned with. More than what you eat, how much you eat, and how picky you are in your eating. That should be our concern. Because those are things that have a real effect on the mind. If you're a glutton, if you're obsessed and... and caught up in, in the act of eating throughout the day, it's going to distract you. If you're picky about your food and selective and, and attached to taste, that's of course going to be a great uh, inhibitor, hindrance to seeing clearly. Where exactly in nostril breath meditation does one focus? Well, that's not our technique, so I'm going to defer that to defer, and I'm going to ref uh, ref redirect that question to suggest that if you're interested in what we do, you can read our booklet, maybe take an at-home meditation course. How do you be mindful when being unintentionally dragged into stressful situations like work? It seems I always forget to note. Practice, practice, practice. There really is no other answer. Work at it. Another, I mean, I guess another factor is going to be how you live your life. So try and find a life that is more uh, more supportive of your practice. But ultimately, ultimately, it's just practice. It's part of the skill that we're trying to gain is the presence of mind, ability to be mindful. If someone is not able to meditate, what is the best advice you can give to start again? The best advice, I think, is that meditation starts now. It's not something you have to start in some abstract sense. As soon as you think that you're not meditating, you can start meditating. 
every moment that you realize that you're not mindful, you can start to be mindful. That's the best way to keep starting again and again. Keep yourself in it. It's to remind yourself that you do it now, anytime. As soon as you remember, as soon as you think of it. Now, if someone's not thinking about it at all, I'm not sure how much help one can be. During my meditation, there comes a point where I become exceedingly focused. I start feeling a very pleasant feeling in the body, like a lifting up in the air. Should I stay with the breath or the feeling? Stay with the feeling if it's more clear. Now, we don't focus exactly on the breath. We focus on the movement of the stomach rising and falling. So if you're not doing our technique, I'd encourage you to try reading our booklet to see how we teach and practice. But uh, these feelings are just more experiences, and when they take your attention, just focus on them. Feeling, feeling. If you like it, say liking, liking. If it's pleasant, you can just say pleasant or happy. Does meditation increase one's sensitivity to sensations or emotions? Yes. Yes, one becomes more present, and so the clarity with which one experiences things is increased, and it feels things will feel more intense. You become more sensitive to them, and you're able to sense the more subtle changes in and the more subtle variations of, of our mental state. Often in times of intense practice, I experience a phenomenon of lucid dreaming, and I am a bit inexperienced in this area. Now I find that it is more effective to meditate when this state comes up. Is this proper? Well, it won't be more effective than, than wake, your waking state, but certainly if you have a wakefulness during sleep, you can try and apply the practice there. Over time, you'll find that you dream less, you sleep less. So it isn't that it isn't a long-term issue, but certainly whenever you have the opportunity to be mindful, take it. I have followed the advice to practice the mantras throughout the day, and I have been seeing how I am different to the thoughts I have. Is non-duality a part of this practice? So you haven't actually been seeing how you are different from the thoughts you have. What you start to see is that the thoughts themselves are not self. But the idea that there is then a self apart from that is still just some concept. This is still just some, some extrapolation. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. What's real is that you're going to see that Uh, the thoughts are just thoughts, they arise and cease. And that's what's important. When the mind gets obsessively fixed on something, how does one be mindful of that? Well, just like anything else, you know, note the obsession, note the clinging. 
You see, mindfulness is always going to be intermittent. It's going to be in between everything else. Your mind is going to incline in non-mindful ways. And to be mindful of those things, you're just... So remember, mindfulness is not actually what we think of as mindfulness. It's reminding yourself. So it happens after you experience something. It always has to. As soon as you've experienced something, you reply to it. You respond to it as, as an alternative to clinging, to reacting. You, you respond to it with understanding, acknowledging, with a familiarity and an objectivity. So once you realize that you're obsessed and fixed, that's when it, the mindfulness begins. Okay, we've come to the end of our tier one questions. Okay, well, thank you all for a good hour. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you, Chris and team, for your hard work. Thank you, Jim and Olu. Sadhu. Sadhu. May all beings be free from suffering. Have a good week, everyone.